Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you again to the AV guys in the back, to the band up front, as you have had to deal with all sorts of fun, interesting electronical problems this morning. We're so grateful for your perseverance and how you've served us well, um, despite all the things that can sometimes happen when the school does its own performance the Sunday or the week before we come back in and use the equipment after them. So we figured out how to turn the lights back on, and I think we have at least one working microphone to make this thing happen. So here we go. Now, this morning scripture passage that you read probably sounds familiar because it's one of those texts that's usually read on Palm Sunday. And it's, of course, entitled probably in your Bible as Jesus's triumphal entry, right, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. This is how the writers typically lay it out. And it's interesting that only two of the Gospels out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them talk about Christmas, but all four of them, despite their many differences, when it comes to the last week of Jesus's life, pretty much track the events spot on. Of course, there's some things from a different perspective, and that's what we're going to look at this morning from Mark's perspective, because believe it or not, right, this text really is all about human flourishing. You know, that's one of the things that we use in our own mission statement here at New Life, right, that we would see lives radically transformed, families flourish, right, and our cities and our neighborhoods changed for good. That as we live out what it means to be the church here in this city, we would see lives radically transformed. Families would flourish. Our city would flourish. And we see that happening because of what this passage makes clear for us, that Jesus is the king who is coming, bringing his kingdom. 
That's actually one of the things that they say, and that's how we can kind of know that this passage really is about human flourishing, because right at the top, they see the people crying out this term, Hosanna, which just is kind of a translated word that means save, I pray. But these people are crying out for a new regime, for a transfer of power, for things to be different, for life to flourish, not under Roman rule, but under the paradigms and hopes and dreams that these individuals have for their own lives, right? They want to be freed from the Romans. They want to live as God would intend for them to live. And then you see them crying out for the coming kingdom of the father David, that they want, they want Israel to be great again. They want the kingdom and rule and reign that they saw under David and Solomon and the great kings of Israel, that kind of flourishing to be the flourishing that they can experience again, which is, of course, very different from our experience because when we think about having a king, we would think that would be the opposite of flourishing. Right? When we think about transfers of power, we, we have a very different idea. We want to have as most power diffused so that we can be as much a king of our own lives, as much in control of our own lives as possible. Right? So we can be bothered by the fewest amount of people and be in the most control of our own life. Right? That's, that's human flourishing. Right? That's why we have homeowners associations. Right? That's why we move to Irvine is because you want to be bothered by the least amount of people, even though you have to live by way too many, and you want to flourish and live the life that you wanted to live. And so how is it that Jesus coming as our king is going to make life flourish? Why is it that we need this kind of king in particular, a humble king, a king who rides in on a donkey? Those are some of the questions that we're going to be looking at this morning. As we ask this question is, how is it that if Jesus is our king, it causes life to flourish? How do those two things work? And so we'll look first at how Jesus redefines what it means to be the king, that he is a Lord who has need. You see this right at the top where it talks about, why are you doing this when he sends them to go get the colt? And the answer is, the Lord has need. So we'll unpack that phrase, and we'll see how this Lord who has need ultimately is the Lord who meets humanity's deepest needs so that we can flourish. And then he's the Lord who empowers us to do the same. So the Lord who has need is the Lord who meets our deepest needs. Those will be the first points we'll look at, and then we'll, we'll close with, so what would this mean for us today? So let's tackle then right away. The Lord has need. Right off the bat, Jesus is redefining what it means to be a king. Because initially our thought is, okay, we don't want a king, right? I think we're all very glad there's no king of America. Um, But Jesus claims to be a king. And as he claims to be this king, he does so in a very different way. He's both the Lord who has need. I've learned nothing else, right, in my time of working in the marketplace and in the church is that when you're asked from an investor of some sort at business, or if you're asked by a client, right? Or if you're even asked by a church member, how's business going? Or how's the church going? There's only one answer you really can give. Great. Things are going good. And yet Jesus is very clear to say, I'm the Lord 
but I have needs. I'm the Lord, I have needs. And so let's look at this, the first one, how Jesus is saying that he is the Lord, because this actually marks a monumental turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Up to this point, Jesus has done a miracle, he's done a healing, and then he says, don't tell anyone. Someone tries to say, you're the Christ, you're the king, even, even demons he'd cast out. You're, uh, we know who you are, and he'd be like, quiet, don't tell anyone. And you got to imagine how that frustrated the disciples because they're like, hey, we're trying to get this movement going until he healed blind Bartimaeus, which is what we looked at last week, on this, before this incident. And Bartimaeus calls him the son of David, recognizing, claiming that Jesus is the rightful king. And for the first time ever, Jesus doesn't tell him to be quiet. Jesus does a miracle and doesn't tell him, don't tell anyone. Instead, Jesus is like, yeah, you can follow me. And we're headed to Jerusalem. This is a huge turning point. Because Jesus, it, it can be easy to read this as, they're going into Jerusalem and people kind of caught wind and the secret got out. And Jesus is kind of like, oh, shucks, guys, you shouldn't have. But it's the exact opposite. Jesus, for the first time ever, has now also not just let other people call him the son of David, the Lord, the king. He's now referring to himself as the Lord and king. Because notice he says, if anyone asks you why, to, why you can't have this donkey or what you're doing, tell them the Lord needs it. Now, on its face, Jesus refers him to himself as the Lord wouldn't be enough to say like, oh, look, here's Jesus claiming to be the rightful king. However, as you move on and you look through everything else Jesus does, it is an unashamed claim that he is the king. So it's set up this way. Jesus is like, all right, we're going to make our time into Bethany. And he's at the Mount of Olives. And there were prophecies in Ezekiel that the Messiah, the Christ, would come, right? God's presence, Mount of Olives, is where God would reside and then enter back into Jerusalem from. So that's highlighted. And then he tells them, I want you to go ahead of me, and you're going to get a colt that no one's rode on. You're going to untie it, bring it back here. Now, it's really easy to get distracted by the question of, is Jesus a Jedi? Okay, because the idea is you send him in there and this is not the donkeys you're looking for, right? You're going to take it, you're going to untie it, you're going to bring it back to me. And so scholars have a field day with this because they're like, well, is Jesus a Jedi? Is this like a miraculous thing he performs from afar? Or is it, you know, that he made some sort of arrangement? Because Jesus knows these people. He's been in these territories for quite some time, maybe he had an arrangement, and so all they have to say is the Lord has need, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we remember we made that arrangement. But you see Jesus here, however he gets this donkey, however he gets this cult, right, because it's kind of the interchangeable word there, is what he's arranging for is not just a cult, but he's actually arranging for the crowd itself even. That Jesus is summoning this whole procession. Jesus creates this entire circumstance. It doesn't happen outside of his control. It happens because of his control. That he creates this entire procession. Because when did the crowd show up? Well, they show up right when the cult shows up. 
And Jesus, summoning this cult, begins to fulfill prophecies from Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, right? Genesis 49, there's this great messianic prophecy over the line of Judah and how the king, right, would have a cult. And then furthermore, it talks about how no one's rode on this cult. So like, you know, is Jesus just social distancing? Hey, make sure, right, they don't have hand sanitizer, so it's just got to be a clean cult. No, the idea of not having anyone rid on this cult comes from Numbers 19, Deuteronomy 21.3, right? All these scriptures that talk about how a cult that no one's rode on yet is holy unto the Lord and that no one was to ride on the king's steed except a king, and thus Jesus is summoning this. When they lay out the cloaks, this is reminiscent of 2 Kings 9.13, where it's basically the, the modern-day equivalent of laying out the red carpet. All of these things, right, that admittedly might make some of your eyes glaze over, as I can tell, right, all point to the fact that Jesus is declaring to be the king. There's no question about it. Sure, it's understated more so than if you were to read some of the other gospel writers' accounts. There's a reason for that we'll see in the book of Mark. But it's very clear that Jesus is saying, I am the king. I am the rightful Lord. I'm the one who is supposed to be in power. And as these people see that and recognize that, they're like, yeah, this would be nice. If we could have a transfer of power to this guy, then our lives would go better. Our lives would flourish. But notice Jesus isn't interested in the kind of transfer of power we naturally would think because he's a Lord who has need. After all, he's riding on a colt. But again, we know from other gospel accounts that this is really a young donkey. So it'd be nice to try and polish it up and be like, oh, well, no, it's, it's just a young horse. It's No, this is a young donkey. I mean, who rides a donkey? Right? When you want to create a cartoon of someone who thinks they're great, but it kind of doesn't really get it, what do you put them on? A donkey, right? Not some mighty war horse, right? He comes in as a donkey. Now, now I know we can kind of see things like Boba Fett, right? Where he's not going to walk around the cities like the huts do, carried on the slave litter. Instead, he's going to be like one of the people. And we're like, yeah, great, awesome. Yes, Jesus, he's like that, right? And you got to understand how different that would have been for that time and place, though. You see, there was actually a, a kind of a rule set around how a warrior ruler was supposed to enter into a kingdom. You'd come in with your royal dress, carried or at least led by and preceded and, and followed by all the slaves that you've conquered. You'd give a mighty speech. You'd have a feast in the city. You'd make a sacrifice in the temple. But how does Jesus come in? Humble on a donkey, claiming to be the king and yet doing the exact opposite of what you would have expected kings to do that day. He doesn't come with slaves. He comes with, with disciples, disciples who he then has a meal with, the Passover meal, a humble meal of just bread and wine, what he knew would be his last meal. And he says, this is the feast that we would partake in and that he would call his disciples his friends not his slaves. His speech is ultimately that he's going to die. But 
In dying, he'll go and prepare a place for us. And of course, the sacrifice that would be made in the temple would be Jesus giving his own life and dying. So much for a triumphal entry. Because look at how his entry even ends. He goes into the temple, and it's just nothing. Right? Nothing. Right? If you were going to make a meme of Jesus entering into the temple, it would be one of those, you know, with like emotional damage plastered across the front. You have this big procession and just met with nothing. No one cares. So Jesus here is redefining power. He's redefining what it means to be a king. He's saying, I'm not coming just to transfer power so that your life might flourish. Right? Because the pilgrims are crying out for a new kingdom, a new regime. Hosanna. And yet, Jesus is saying, I'm not coming, I'm not coming to just liberate you from captivity to the Romans. And I'm not coming to take power and control the way Romans would take power and control by dominating and conquering and ruling and enslaving just a different, we'll just enslave them instead of them enslaving us. No, Jesus is saying, I am coming to be vulnerable even though I have absolute power in my control. Because isn't this how we think life flourishes in our own life? We think that the way you make flourishing happen is that you minimize all your vulnerabilities, and you maximize your power and your control. You minimize your ability to be hurt, to be put into a place of suffering, and you maximize your ability to control situations so that you can maximize your own pleasure. You can guarantee outcomes. You can avert as many losses as possible. And yet Jesus is saying very clearly as he enters in, demonstrating everything he's just been teaching on in the chapter before in chapter 10, where he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. The son of man came, right, to be a ransom for many, to give his life, not to gain all these lives as slaves to him, but he would ultimately be treated as a slave for us. He radically redefines power, which means all of us have to ask the question, how are we thinking about power and vulnerability, right, in our own lives? Are we giving in to just the same paradigm of maximize your control and minimize your weakness and vulnerability? This is what the best authoritarians do, right? Is they're always talking about, here's all the power I have, the power I have, the power I have. And yet there's another way to maximize your ability to control things. It's not just by highlighting how powerful you are. The other way to do it is by highlighting how much of a victim you are. Right? So the best dictators, they do this, don't they? They don't just talk about how awesome and powerful they are and how great their military is and look at the parades, but they also talk about how bad their enemies are and how unjustly they've been treated and how they're aggrieved. And the, the best dictators are both manipulative in the way that they can talk about their victimhood, but also flexing in their power. Now, it's not just dictators, though, who can do that. We can do this in our own lives. We want to maximize things for control, right? So that we can know the outcomes, manage as many outcomes as possible. 
But if you can't do it that way, through just power by either being domineering or abusive, you can do it by being manipulative, right? This is the spouse who can come home and just talks about how tired they are and how hard they are. And therefore, you know, the other spouse just really needs to meet their needs and help them and support them because of just how grieved they are. And they lean into that victimness. Now, why this is important is because, I'm just even using marriage as an example here now, is that both of those things aren't wholly inappropriate in a marriage, but they need to be balanced. You see, it's flourishing in our relationships where we maximize the empowerment of one another and the vulnerability that we have with one another. Right, so it's not just all about my needs and my grievances. Of course, you're open about your needs and grievances, but you're also open to being hurt and hearing and bearing the burdens of the other person as well. And it's not just by maximizing my power, look at how great this relationship makes me feel, but it's also by sharing that, empowering the other person. I mean, this is literally the biblical model for marriage, right, where husbands are told to love your wives as Christ loved the church, which means, yes, you have this sort of power in the person's life to speak to them for good, but you also need to open yourself up to the vulnerability, to the risk, to the hurts that can happen. This is true of parenting, is it not? Right? In parenting, you have extreme power and authority. Right? You get to control this person's life, at least in, you know, as long as you're physically stronger than them. You know? um, and yet, parenting also to do it well, doesn't just require having authority and discipline and rules. You need that. But it also requires opening yourself up to an enormous amount of risk and pain and suffering. This happens from just wrestling on the couch. You got to kind of hold back on your power and be willing to take a big skull to the lips, right? Accidentally. But this also happens when you're just going to know... I, I, I need to empower my kids to do things on their own, but that means I'm going to open myself up to the risk and vulnerability and scariness and anxiety of whether or not they can do it well enough and be safe enough. And yet, of course, good parenting is in both empowering and opening yourself up to risk. And bad parenting is not just no, all, all risk and no discipline or all discipline and no vulnerability with your children. It's ultimately just withdraw entirely. No discipline, no vulnerability, no love in the relationship, no guidance. And yet we know that that's how flourishing works. And yet at the same time, we don't naturally default want to live the way Jesus lives. We don't want to use our power in the way Jesus would use his power. He redefines it for us. And yet, we still, part of us, a lot of us, want to maximize our ability to have authority, to transfer as much power to ourselves so that we can minimize as much suffering to ourselves. Because I think all of us have lived in an experience where... You've been open and vulnerable, and yet you've found that you had no power to act in the situation. And that's the worst feeling. That's true suffering. That's true poverty. 
right? True poverty is not just having enough financial resources, but it's like many of us worrying about our own kids, but then not having the power or authority to protect them or actually keep them safe. And all of us have had an experience like that that's convinced us you don't want to use power the way Jesus did. Because, of course, look at what happened to Jesus. You don't want to open yourself up to that kind of suffering, to that kind of vulnerability. You need to maximize your power to minimize your vulnerability. But Jesus tells us human flourishing will never come that way. It comes the opposite way. Which brings us to our second point, which is why do we actually need a humble king? Why do we need a king who's going to come humbly? I mean, Jesus has spent, the Gospel of Mark has shown us a Jesus who's been nothing but demonstrate his power and authority to still a storm, to feed 5,000 people, to raise people from the dead, to give sight to the blind, to heal the sick. Everything shows his immeasurable power, and yet he's going to come on a donkey and die. Why do we need a king like that? Why do we need a humble king? How is it that is going to lead to flourishing? The answer is, is that this king who has need is the only king who can meet humanity's deepest need. Why does he have to be a humble king? Why does he have to ride a donkey? You may say, well, he's got to fulfill the prophecies, right? I mean, you can't be the Messiah and then be like, ooh, forgot to check off that last prophecy, though. The whole thing falls apart. So he's got to fulfill all these prophecies. But let me ask this then. Why were those the prophecies? Why were the prophecies, behold, your king comes to you gently, humbly from Zechariah 9? Why are those the prophecies? Riding on a donkey. Why has it got to be that? Why couldn't it have been, behold, your king will come mighty and great? Right? Isn't that what we have at the end of the book of Revelation? Right? This king who comes, lightning white, sword from his mouth, white steed. That's what we want. Change the regime. Transfer the power. Right? Let's get this show on the road. But no, why do we need a humble king? Why were the prophecies about a humble king? Well, I think it's because you have to trace all the prophecies back to the very first messianic prophecy. The very first prophecy about Jesus in the entirety of the scriptures. And it comes in Genesis chapter 3. It's right after Adam and Eve have taken the fruit and they have eaten it. And what was the lie that they believed? They believed that they could have power. That they could control things. That they could organize their situation and minimize their dependency. Minimize their vulnerability. That if they took that fruit, they could be like God. Maximizing their power and minimizing their vulnerabilities. They could be like God. And that's the lie that's snuck into each one of our own hearts. And it's been reinforced over and over and over again by our experiences of being in vulnerable situations with no power to act experiencing some sort of heinous abuse or even just a slight, you know, that can come across in the office. That all of those things have compounded to show us, no, no, we do need to maximize my ability to control my outcomes, my scenarios, my situations, and minimize my vulnerabilities. And I'll do that in my relationships. I'll do that in my parenting. I'll do that with those at work. 
After all, this is the only way to even get ahead, is it not? But you see, when Adam and Eve, when humanity believes that lie, that we can be like God, that we can have that power, minimizing our dependency on him, the only solution that's going to break the power of that lie is for God himself to make himself vulnerable, is for God himself to be utterly dependent on others, on his own mother, to live a life where he would, the God of the universe, put himself in the place of humanity because it was humanity that tried to put themselves in the place of God. And there were only going to be two solutions to that. Either God would have to scrap the whole project or God would have to somehow not just address the penalty of sin that comes from taking the fruit, but he would have to somehow break the power that we believe is in that lie. And so God actually minimizes his power and uses it to empower us and leans in wholly to vulnerability, to risk. And he doesn't just risk suffering, but he embraces it. He marshals all his power to orchestrate what the Romans had perfected in humiliating and torturing and killing a person by dying on a cross. You see, Jesus is unlike any other king because he wants to reverse that pattern in our lives. And when you see a Jesus who does that for you, if you can capture that, if that can actually capture your heart, then that's how you step into your marriage. And you can open yourself up to the other person's needs. And it's how you can bear one another's burdens. It's how you can love your wife as Christ loved the church. Because you know you now don't need anything from this person Jesus is the one who has everything that we need. And so you have an abundance that you can pour out on them. It doesn't mean there isn't mutual love and care, but the source of that mutual love and care is not the person you're loving. It's the person who has loved you. That's why we said in our time of assurance this morning that this is love, that God first loved us and gave his son for us. This is how you can lean in as a parent and begin to sort of let go and empower your children some more, as terrifying as I'll be the first to admit that is, right? You know, I, I, I'll just be totally honest with you. I, I always look down on helicopter parents, and then I had kids and realized that's because I'm a bulldozer parent, right? Helicopter's not enough. You need to plow the way for them. And that's not going to help them, right? Grow and flourish, empowering them. I need to open up to the vulnerability and risk that comes, right, from empowering my own children. All right, so that's just a, a bit then. But now that I'm on to it, how does the Lord invite us into this with him? And I think this is what's so fantastic. There's, uh, there's so much to, to see here, but... One of the things that always has stood out to me about the Palm Sunday passage is that God, because of how he uses his power, because he's this king who comes humbly, 
And because he breaks that power of sin in our lives, he breaks the lie of our need for our own control and power and, and opens us up to a world of flourishing in relationships. Because of that, what's so incredible is he can take a task as simple as fetching a donkey and now imbue it with eternal significance. Fetching a donkey. I mean, sure, it's a cult no one's rid on. Holy to the Lord, right? Things still smelled. Things still, right? Defecated all over on the journey, right? All the things that come with unglorious donkey fetching, okay? Because no one looks at that and takes that seriously. And I'll prove it to you because I was driving down Ridge Valley one day, crossing Irvine Boulevard, and do you know what I saw? I saw a guy leading two donkeys. And guess what? I wasn't impressed. My first thought was, well, that's weird. My third thought was like, I literally wanted to pull over on the side of the road and be like, what is going on here that you're just walking donkeys down Irvine Boulevard? It, it was incredible, but it wasn't impressive. And it wasn't a job I'd want to sign up to do. And yet, because Jesus sends his disciples to do this, just that menial task gives them eternal significance. That they're the ones who were part of helping Jesus fulfill the prophecies to become the Messiah. Now, if Jesus can do that with donkey fetching, he can do that with diaper changing. He can do that with your office work. He can do that with your marriage, with your parenting. He can do that with every area of life by infusing into it eternal significance now. And that we get to be partners in helping life flourish by using our power differently. Sure, you may not have all the power you wish you'd have, but that we use the power we can have by empowering others, by maximizing that, and by opening ourselves up to vulnerability. Look, I think this is how we're changed. And this makes this clear for us. This is, this is what we are invited into, is that we're invited into this, this difficult dance now to lead in this way, to use our power in this way, where we're to bear hidden burdens while at the same time not promising this life of control without vulnerability. And that's really hard. That's really hard. Okay, so as we've, you know, entered into trying to uh, look at the safety protocols here, right, as you guys have heard, you know, um, Captain Wong did this great seminar for us last Sunday and kind of pulls back the curtain on our vulnerabilities. And it's terrifying. And what's so incredible to me about that is that's just, right, it's got to just be a peak, right? And then you learn, right, that there's the secret Orange County Intelligence Group, OKAYAK, and they know all this stuff that's going on, and then you hear everything, right, that the law enforcement probably knows that they, like, shield us from, because if we knew everything they knew, we would never leave the house. We would shelter in place willingly, right? It wouldn't be an issue of face masks, And yet, they bear that burden without promising that we can't ever be vulnerable. Or without promising that you can 
totally live an invulnerable life. The same is true for doctors, is it not? Okay, I went to one, one doctor, right? I won't say what kind of specialty, right? But it's the worst kind where they work on your teeth. And right before I'm about to have something done for some nerve pain, the doctor just like tells me like, you know, this might not work. You tell me this now? And he could see like my shock, my anger. I'm like, you're supposed to keep that a secret. Okay, all right, well then, you, as many of you heard, I, I had a surgery done a couple months ago, right? They had to go in and basically drill larger holes into my head because my sinuses were all clogged up and inflamed and needed to be widened, right? And so, in doing so, I had this fantastic doctor who was very clear on the risks and what would happen, right? And then on the probability and how that worked, Who's, who's, who showed me clearly what the vulnerability was, but also made it very clear about how he had the power to help me get through this, right? Building up my own self-efficacy, only to go to Bible study with a bunch of other jerk doctors who then told me all the horror stories about what can happen from that surgery, right? At which point you're like, too much vulnerability, too much, right? The good doctors, not like my friends, the good doctors shield their patients from unnecessary vulnerabilities, right? Parents, we do this, right, with our kids. We need to bring them up into those, but we can't give them all of it all at once. We need to empower them to be able to take those tasks on. Good managers, you know what the financials look like. You know how far the project's behind. You know how things are going. And yet, there's a part of you that by taking on that power, you're going to bear some of the vulnerability for those under you. Right? And it's the worst managers who do what? They take all the power and they dump all the vulnerability on the people under them. Right? So if it goes wrong, well, it's their fault. You should have given me a better team. If it goes right, well, great, because I'm the one who's in power. And of course, Jesus is the one who empowers us to do all of that differently. Now, how might we know whether or not we're actually living this way? Well, if you're saved through power, if you're believing that lie that came into our hearts in the garden, right? Then you can look at how do you handle success? Do you get prideful? Well, then how do you handle failure? Are you not just humbled, but actually humiliated? You know, if you are living under this paradigm of maximizing your power, you're saved through strength. Not through a weakness of a humble king, but through the strength of a mighty king, of your own performance, your own great, greatness. You see, it will end up sucking all the joy out of your life. And any of the joy you are experiencing will just be a joy that's the result of pride. And so it won't make you a humble person. Whereas what Jesus can do for us is he can create for us a sense of joy that comes out of a sense of humility. Because he's died for us. He saves us. He corrects the lie that we believe, the sin that we have. He's our only hope in life and death. And yet, at the same time, we're not humiliated. We're actually given an amazing confidence to lean into these relationships. 
to help human beings flourish. That we can handle suffering differently now because of our humble king. That when suffering comes, we're not angry because God owes me. I've been performing. I've been, I've been being strong and good. Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Or a deep hum- humiliation of, yes, I knew, I knew he'd find me out. I knew if I couldn't have kicked that habit, if I couldn't kick that sin, eventually God would ruin my life and he's punishing me. Right? Neither a confidence and a humble joy. See, because of Jesus, we can know that suffering isn't because God's punishing us. It's not because we haven't done enough. Right? Jesus has borne our punishment. And we can trust this one who orchestrates these crowds to eventually kill him, to be the one who can orchestrate our lives so that we will flourish. And that he can do that even in the worst amount of suffering. That helps us then forgive others. If someone wrongs us, it's not a, how could they do this? I would never do that. A pride that comes out of it. That, and it makes it so you can't forgive But instead, there's a, well, I may not have done that, but I know I'm also so evil that Jesus did need to die for me. And if he can forgive me, I have the power and resources to forgive this person. You see, Jesus, notice, where does he go? This whole procession isn't just for the sake of the procession. It's because he is actually headed somewhere. He's headed right to the temple. Jesus uses his power to maximize his own vulnerability, his own dependency. And he goes right to the temple because his mission is that he wants us to have access to God. You see, that's where we'll pick up our story next week as we see what Jesus then does at this temple. That on this night is empty, but on the next night he will start overturning tables because his mission His power is used not to oppress us, but to free us. So that like the Apostle Paul, we'd be able to say, my grace here, Jesus saying to us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore we can say, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now humbly, asking that you would help us to have a view of Jesus, not as one who controls us, who came to condemn us, to say that we're not enough and we don't have enough, and that we need to get our acts together. But Jesus, who came to give his life, a Jesus who's a ransom for many, is a ransom for us. So Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to have that view of Jesus, to hear your voice saying that your grace is sufficient for us, empowering us in everything that we do, infusing into it the idea and the understanding that it has eternal significance as we do it in service to our great King Jesus. Amen.